Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. We are featuring some of the best and the newest podcast hosts and their shows in Asia. Welcoming to Asia Tech Podcast today, Bernard Leong, who... Well, I suppose you don't need a lot of introduction. If you know podcasts and you know Asia, you should know, analyze Asia. Bernard, welcome to the show. Hi, Graham. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, it's great, finally, to speak to you. So we know each other for some time and we've been at each other's radars for some time. We've we've spoken, we've met, uh, well, we've had lunch together. This is the first time we've actually done a podcast together. So it's great to actually have you in the virtual studio to talk about your journey and to talk about analyze asia maybe we could talk a little bit about yourself and your background before we go there just so people know you're based in singapore you are singaporean through and through but educated at cambridge right yes i am actually a singaporean but i actually uh, have a corporate day job working as a senior executive in an aviation company mm. so um actually for those who know what, where i work so what i'm going to say is probably opinions and perspectives from my own and rep- doesn't not reflect any of the organizations that I work for. So I think, yes, I have been working in the podcast space for a while. And actually, it's, it's actually my side project. I probably mm-hmm. spent about five to seven hours per week on each episode. And it's it's been quite a long time. I think I've done this for almost four years with Analyze Asia. Actually, there was a podcast before that that I have started. It's actually the background before I started Analyze Asia. And mm-hmm. that is another three years. And that totals up almost, I think, yeah, actually more than that. I think it's, yeah, three, four, yeah, it's about 10 years, actually. I remember starting the my podcast in 2008. What the, the were you doing podcasts. in 2008? What was that podcast about? So at that point in time, we, I was uh, the owner of a media portal called SG Entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to experiment on the podcast medium. So together with uh, Michael Smith Jr., you probably now know of him course. as the partner of Seed Plus. He's been on my show a couple of times. That's right. Um, and then there is um, Daniel Cervantes, who used to run Malaysia Entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. I think now he's uh, spending a lot of time in building conferences and learning seminars in Malaysia. And together with uh, Michael Fong and John Lim. And we set up this thing called This Week in Asia. Mm. Actually, the inspiration was based on Leo Laporte's This Week in Tech. Yeah, that's in a good tech. starting point. That was a great show. Yes, that's right. Um, what happened in that podcast is pretty simple. We just take the news of the week and then we have commentaries. Mm. We also invite guests. Uh, some of my guests include um, Rama Mamayev, who is the head of Daily Social, uh, Mohan Balani, who heads up E27, uh, Gwen, who my co-founder from SG Entrepreneurs, who eventually went on to join Tech in Asia and then ran Mashable Asia, mm-hmm. and many other guests that we know. Oh, yes, of course, uh, Lu Gang from TechNode as well. Mm-hmm. So that is where we actually build up the network of people around. And at that point in time, um, John Russell was also on the show, but he was still with the Next Web before he joined TechCrunch. So mm-hmm. over that 10 years, somewhere in... 2011, we kind of not, we did not really maintain enough momentum. And I was very dissatisfied with the quality of the podcast uh, recording. So I decided that maybe what I would do is, and also because all of us got married and have kids, Mm. 
mm-hmm. and it's difficult to coordinate a show. And so I decided maybe I should uh, think about taking a step back and figuring out what I can do with the podcast medium. Mm-hmm. So somewhere around 2013 to 2014, I started thinking about doing a high quality podcast. And the, the reason why I mean by high quality is because if you try to interview someone within Asia, uh, the bandwidth constraints uh, and differences between countries actually has uh, create sometimes your audio quality degrades and also uh, making the interview sometimes broken up for no reason. And so what I decided to do is I'm going to decide on a one-to-one interview. I was pretty inspired by Horace Deleuze. Uh, the mm-hmm. critical path and so I want to build a much more in-depth story on Asia businesses so we always think about companies like SoftBank, Alibaba, Tencent, uh, Reliance Group in India, Tomasic in Singapore and many other whether it is uh, big technology companies or even local regional Asian companies so I decided that okay so this is what I'm going to do and I just want to get it, make it happen and so I started Analyze Asia. I think the f- first episode was launched on 2nd of September 2014. Mm. So four years into the journey, let's talk about what that's been like for you. Um, obviously, things have changed, things have evolved, life has changed, like you say, you know, you know, different jobs, different background. I mean, the, the the podcast industry is evolving as well itself. We'll talk a little bit about that as well, what's happened in the, the last few years. What was it like when you were starting out Analyze Asia? You said that you come from that background of doing This Week in Asia with your crew. Um, you had modeled that Leo Laporte show, which is fantastic, This Week in Tech. Um, now you decided to strike out on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, you wanted to produce this high-quality podcast you said you were doing it one-to-one. Does that mean you were doing face-to-face podcasts at the beginning? How did it start for you? No, actually, when I first started, what I do is I needed to find the right recording software. And I think in the early stages when we did This Week in Asia, all of us have only what we uh, a very simple microphone mm-hmm. and using headphones. So I did a, some research on getting the best microphones that I can use and also the headphones and create a small podcast studio in the new home that uh, uh, my family now resides in. Mm. So in that process, what happens is that also I was looking out for very good uh, communication applications. I mean, Skype is one mm. one way. Uh, nowadays, I also use Zoom as well to basically do the recording of the podcast. But I think, uh, but I think that actually, even with these good communication applications, it's still not good enough. Um, I've also looked at some web-based ones like Zencaster, which records both sides. So you record your end and I record mm. my end. The beauty of actually talking to podcasters like yourself, who sometimes I get on the show, is that they love to record on their end. So actually the quality of that uh, interview is much better. Mm. So and sometimes I have to do uh, face-to-face. So I bought a sort of a H2N Zoom after a lot of research. And um, that particular recorder has accompanied me many times since. Mm. So you do both face to face, but mostly you do your interviews remotely, either through Zoom or Skype. Um, but you, I mean, how many have you done now? Four years in, how many Analyze Asia episodes would that be? I think we have now reached two hundred and seventy-six episodes. Right. 
276. Congratulations. It's been solid. I mean, you know, you've been consistent for four years. I, I don't know if there's a longer running podcast show in Asia. Maybe you can correct me. Do you know of one? Uh, I The answer to that is I'm not, I do not know. Right. I probably think that there are some podcasts who have been around. Maybe they talk about different subjects, mm. uh, probably different from what you and I are covering currently. Yeah. I think in the last one, two years, the tech sector podcast is actually growing. And I think that there's something very healthy within the podcast ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. Especially here in Asia, we are a few years behind, let's say, America in the podcasting scene, catching up, learning what works there and, and sort of importing those the best practices as well. But definitely it's much healthier here now. So if you're 276 in, what's it like for you now? in terms of doing your podcast? Because it, it's a journey, isn't it? You've evolved through that. You've done 276. You've had some amazing guests. You've already mentioned some names already, the kind of people that have been on your show, people like Horace Deju, for example. What do you know or what do you do differently now, Bernard? Episode mm. 277 that you weren't doing episode one, two. Well, I think over the past few years, about um, I've actually learned a different lessons. And I think one of the most interesting part is actually networking with my audience and getting to know them. And they usually come to me uh, with suggestions on who they want as a guest. Hmm. I think the other thing I've done, uh, what was different when I first started till now, I started building an operational workflow for the podcast. And I apply a kind of um, this particular Japanese craftsmanship way of thinking called the Shokunin attitude. So there's like a five stage to produce each episode. And what I tend to do is improve the workflow of each step so that I could actually uh, give myself enough extra time to actually do more. So one of the things that uh, because of my uh, day job, which is mm -hmm. actually um, physically and mentally very demanding and being a father of a young family of two, uh, I have actually condensed my workflow down to five to seven hours. Mm. I tell people five hours, sometimes it could be seven hours. And then I spent a lot more time researching on guests. And I think one of the things that actually have I've evolved is that I have decided to curate the guests, who my guests should be, and not let PR agencies mm. or any other people to dictate my choice. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that. That's so important, isn't it? Because especially for podcasters who are starting out on the journey, at the beginning, it's hustle. You're talking to the people that you know, your network. Then you get noticed and people start coming to you, don't they? And you get the PR companies who realize, actually, you're a great platform for their clients. How do you deal with that? What's your standard? Do you have a standard response? Is there a certain policy you have for dealing with that? Uh, yes, I do. So I actually have a way of choosing my guests. So first of all, I would curate who my guest should be. Does it of does it have does this person be um, involved in the story that I want to tell? I think the other thing is also I research my guests by listening to where they have appeared previously yeah. in podcasts or conferences. So I have started from a, from going it from the very high end. So I look for global thought leaders. You mentioned Horace Didu, he's a global thought leader. Someone like Jessica Lesson from The Information. Uh, but I wanted to ask them, what's their Asia angle? Then I talked to industry leaders, 
people who have been involved in the industry or they may be business operators in the corporate sector. So they could probably will be the head of Asia Pacific region. So for someone like Caesar Sengupta, who's involved in the Next Billion initiative in Google, or Ricky Kapoor, who's the head of Microsoft Enterprise for Asia Pacific. So these are the type of people that I would love to get on my show. I think one of my most interest, interesting guests was the head of Asia Pacific for Nissan. So we can talk about uh, autonomous vehicles mm. and they, they also talk, share with us their operating experience. Um, and of course, journalists from reputable media. The beauty of me starting earlier, maybe 10 years ago, that is that I got to know people like John Russell, mm. who started from the next web, eventually he became TechCrunch. So there, there is not much difference from how, how I used to know him then and now. He's the same guy I know. Mm. And I also, uh, through really hustling, I would like to always tell people for every 10 guests I try to invite, I will get nine rejections. I got uh, Nuni Panel from Wall Street Journal, uh, Brad Stone and Tim Capon from Bloomberg and uh, Shai Oster from The Information, and also Juro Osawa as well, and ah, Lisa Lin from Wall Street Journal as well. So you build up this network and, and put them together. And of course, I also like to talk to people who have certain expertise. So Matthew Brennan will, who will be probably the number one Tencent expert in China. So that's someone that I would love to get, and maybe sometimes like an editor of a a notable publication would be someone like John Atman from Techno. So these are the types of people I have placed on my list. I actually have a spreadsheet that I will go through the people mm. I want, the people who I can invite, and then how many tries I, I do. Mm. So there's only one catch that I have, and I think not a lot of people know about this rule, and I actually impose it onto the PR agencies who try to pitch me because they try to pitch me a lot of startup founders. So I have... I do not want to interview any startup founders with their startups below Series B funding. Mm -hmm. Why is and that? Because I think for Asian companies, when you become a Series B company, you truly become a proper operating company. And I think that there are very good people out there who can tell stories of startups better than I do. And I wanted to avoid that. Mm. So, yeah. So, But I make exceptions. So... There was two exceptions I made. One was Roslyn Koo, who is the CEO of CXA Group. And the reason why I broke the law for her was that prior to that, she was 14 years the managing director of Mercer Insurance for the whole region, Asia Pacific. Mm -hmm. So I classify her more under an industry leader than a startup founder. Well, you've got some great names there. I mean, going back through some of the people that you've mentioned, Bernard, and mm -hmm. obviously... Um, you know, a big set of people. I won't go through every single one of them, mm -hmm. but some of them that you mentioned, for example, like John Russell, Horace Dedu, um, mm -hmm. John Artman, Matthew Brennan, for example, you know, mm -hmm. some have come from a more journalistic background who, or some of the analytical background. These are great storytellers and they make great guests because they have the anecdotes they have the experience to talk in depth and research their subject they know it really well and they are good at communicating their subject how do you get that sort of storytelling or that real in-depth angle or that sort of ability to communicate from somebody on the corporate side who 
isn't out there necessarily doing that on a daily basis. How do you get that? Because you can get a, a big name from a large corporate who may be a well-known name, but how do you get interesting content out of them? Because A, you may have Marcoms and handlers who, you know, you can talk about this, but you can't talk about that. And B, you know, these aren't natural storytellers like a journalist or an analyst. How do you ensure that sort of quality content, interesting content from people on the corporate side? Mm, so the competitive advantage and also my, as well as my weakness is that I have a corporate day job. And the beauty of that is because I'm also a senior executive. When I approach um, these corporate le uh, business leaders, what happens is that we're talking on e equal footing. Mm. And one of the things that when I pitch to them, uh, about a story that I want to develop, it has to be something related to what they're currently doing. So I wouldn't want to talk to Caesar about just Google in Asia Pacific. I want to talk about his next billion initiative and what he's building to get the billions of users in Asia Pacific. So mm. that's one, one way of thinking. So you could actually frame a story with the corporate leaders in a way that uh, that will also work with their Marcom. Um, in some cases, it's really a personal favor, and I don't usually impose a lot on them. I typically ask them questions that they could think of, they could articulate what I call a thoughtful opinion and answer, and there should be no surprise or shock, meaning that I, I don't like to ask controversial questions because mm. I think Analyze Asia, the, what is the theme of my podcast, right? Dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. So I'm interested, I'm not interested in the most shiny object. So if you tell me this week there will be a big breaking news, I probably won't cover it. I probably would do it probably two, three months later when probably there will be 200 articles written, seven to 10 podcast episodes re uh, recorded, and then I analyze the entire whole thing. Mm. So that makes my life simpler as mm. well. Yeah, I got it. Do you find that when you're speaking to execs at corporates that... Mm there you know you're having to deal with marcoms you're having to provide questions up front how does that work because i guess some podcast and um, podcast hosts or people starting out on a podcast may think that okay i want to talk to these guys but you know i have mm. to clear the questions is that what you do do you sort of work with marcoms in that context or is the kind of people that you're dealing with feel that they don't have to go through that avenue so within my own uh, podcast workflow, I've actually worked out a series of questions that I usually send it to my guests a week before. So it doesn't matter whether I'm working with the Marcom or not, I'll just send it to them. And then they will come back with some changes. Mm. I think with most of the senior executive leaders that I've interviewed so far, <laughs> the, the, the probably most interesting surprise is that 95% of the Marcom never challenge my questions. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think I did, when you I did, get I to a level that you know they they can speak for themselves. There's a trust for that executive as well. I think, especially when they're dealing with a specific project, like you said with Caesar, I think in those that context they're okay to speak about that because that's what they know really well. That's right, and I I do not want to go into subjects that their mm. uh, counterparts in the U.S. are undergoing some controversy. So, for example, if I would ever interview somebody from Facebook, I would have no interest in asking about what's happening in the US. Mm. Well, what, what is all the congressional happenings, etc. I'll be more interested to ask them questions about what's happening in Asia, 
right? What's happening in Philippines, Myanmar, and probably something about what they are planning to do to connect people. So I, I think the context specific is very important when dealing with corporate guests. Yeah. Do you ever get the, you know, guests that may come back and said, okay, you've got to take that out or I don't like what I said there. What What's your rule with that? Do you have an edit ah, rule or a policy on yeah. that? I have, a, um, the podcast is edited. So one thing I do give to all my guests is that during the course of the interview, when they say something stupid or they say something they shouldn't, they just have to be on the spot, tell me that they mm. need to take it out. Yeah. That's and good. once, so once after that, if the editing is done and the podcast is out, they cannot come back and ask me to edit. Mm -hmm. That I won't give because... Because I think that um, I, I understand the audio channel is slightly different. Not everybody is vocal like you and I. So mm. I have to make, give allowance for them to actually uh, be able to correct themselves mm. on the record. Yeah, it makes complete sense. You've given them a chance as well. I think as well that you build trust with them in the context of the conversation, that you're not a journalist. You're not looking to catch them out. You're not looking for a hook or a story. You want to make them and the conversation, you know, you've got this conversation arc that you're working with and you want to help them add to that narrative rather than try and catch them out with, you know, a scoop, which is good because especially when you're dealing with corporates who, you know, may not be familiar too much with podcasts, it puts them at ease as well. And they can be more open and more relaxed about their subject area. Okay, let's talk about what you've learned in this process. So how do you think, well, I know you've done more than four years of podcasts, but four years specifically with Analyze Asia as a podcast host. What's it done for you? I mean, forget about the business context and the business benefits of doing it. As a person, has it changed you in any way? Has it sort of given you, has it sharpened your skill set in any way? Are there skills that you've picked up? Mm. You, the One of the secondary reasons why I decided to do Analyze Asia is actually to listen better and learn to ask questions. So I discovered that I like to talk a lot. And I think that if I want to be a successful senior executive or someday if I become a CEO of a company, I need to learn how to listen better. Mm. So this was actually the real secondary reason I was doing this. I'm actually doing this. Mm. And it actually helps me in my personal growth when it comes to hiring and handling difficult discussions. So uh, through interviewing different people, learning different perspectives. And I, I like to always challenge myself on topics that I do not know or may, or it may be a little bit controversial. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I interview Helen Douche and uh, Uma Balasingham uh, from the Lean Movement in Singapore, uh, it, it is a discussion of women issues. And I know that there would be some preconceived bias or the way I would um, do, do the questioning may not may not be very helpful to them uh, getting the course. So I spent a significant amount, I think I probably spent about three hours preparing the questions and going back and forth uh, with friends who are ladies and say, is this the right way to talk about this subject as well? And interestingly, the feedback came back was, uh, <laughs> got through from my wife, from someone else who have heard it and told my wife and, she did, and they didn't know that um, she was my wife and didn't say, oh, you have to listen to this. and. Mm -hmm. And it came out right. Mm -hmm. I think I think this is something that you will learn um, in the process of doing the podcasting. So you'll find that when you first start off, you'll be pretty brash. You may say things that uh, 
too quickly or you may try to have conversations that you try to dictate but as you move along you start to learn to listen and learn how to do a follow-up and I, I actually enjoyed this part in fact if you were to ask me today and maybe four years ago I'm better at doing follow-up questions mm. in fact the outline of the questions uh, actually was a very interesting feedback from uh, John Edmund once he said I like to follow a list of questions in a very systematic order I should learn to talk about the story rather than the questions mm. and and that was became very useful for me in thinking about how to ask questions and how to communicate with people. I think that's the one of the biggest things that I actually learned in the process. So when you started out Analyze Asia, were you conscious of the fact that you had this need to be a better listener or is that something that came as you were doing the podcast, you realized actually this is good for my listening skills? I'm wondering about what the motivation was. We've already talked about moving from This Week in Asia to starting your own podcast. Mm. Did you start it thinking, right, I need to improve my listening skills. What's the best way of doing that? Well, a podcast would help. Mm, actually, I started with that motivation as really? for a secondary, secondary personal growth mm. goal that I have. Um, I think it is important to set some uh, the broader goals, which is what your podcast should be doing. Um, it's easy for me to always tell people these days that, hey, I'm just telling the story of 4.4 billion people to the rest of the world. And this is the fastest growing region. So you, you, it is easy to convey what you want to say. But I think as in the process of uh, doing all that, you also want to have something that could allow you to grow. Otherwise, you, you couldn't persevere or have the grit to actually build a podcast to so many episodes, right? Mm -hmm. I think you and I probably would agree that in order to... A lot of people gave up on their podcast, I think, probably after six to ten episodes. Yeah, that's the hump. Yeah, and, and you want to hear the real honest truth? I went through five hump, five, five dips. Right. And each dip, uh, when I start seeing my numbers starting to fall, I actually started figuring out how to get better to bring in more new audience. Hmm. So tell me about that. You are conscious of when you say your dips does that mean your motivation dip and therefore that's reflected in the numbers or you mean it was a dip in the numbers and therefore you looked at how you could improve that when you talk about that those humps a lot mm. of people give up six to ten mm. because they don't have the operations in place that you mentioned and mm. you know they end up the, the whole thing goes off the rails because they're not able to do multitask, which is really what podcasting is about, isn't it? There's lots of things going on at the same time. How, how, what was it for you? What was the, the dips that you've experienced? Mm. Well, the dips I experienced are actually the subscriber numbers and the number of downloads. Mm. So what typically happens, I, I don't know whether you have that experience. You go through probably the first five episodes is on the high because you get friends, families or strangers to listen to it. And you probably wouldn't have a lot of feedback from then. And then the number starts to dip because everybody say, hey, you're okay now. So mm. we probably don't want to listen. Then you need to start to build your audience, right? And then you start to, to, to look at the way you have been doing your interviews. Uh, what are the subjects? Do you want to expand the coverage? So every time I see a dip in my numbers, typically that will go through around three, three months. I will start to have this re-evaluation session. How do I get better? How do I growth hack it? Mm. I will tell you another experience. So one interesting thing was that the type of content which my audience likes. 
I think we have this conversation when we were having lunch together and I was telling you that if I do a China story, I get a 25% growth. Yeah, that's right. And then India, I also have a 25% growth, episode on episode. But when I hit Southeast Asia, I get a minus 15%, maybe with the exceptions of topics like Grab, Tamasic, Singtel, or Gojek, everything else dips. But I still do it because I, I need to tell the story equally across these mm. demographics. So one thing that I started to do is I started to go into each of these geographies, which are the tools to actually could um, get the audience to discover me. So for China, I started originally uh, distributing with uh, TechNote because it's on their WeChat uh, uh, um, official page. Mm -hmm. So people were able to look at my content. It went from zero to suddenly 10% mm. of my total audience today. So India, you do the same. And then Southeast Asia, you have a different strategy. So I think every dip is, I've, I, I think I've gotten to the point where it, every, every time I see a dip is good for me mm. because it, it really throws me off balance and gets me to think, how do I make my content better? When has that happened recently to Bernard? When have you had a dip and how did you respond? Did you, what was the growth hack that you pulled out the bag? I, I think the last dip I have was probably a year ago. Mm. And I have started to shift the amount of episodes I produce and focus it on high quality. So I, I've started not doing so many episodes. There was a period of time I was doing eight episodes per month. And I couldn't see the growth that I wanted to do. And what I decided to do was maybe I should reduce and focus on the guests. And focus on who should I should bring in that could make the subject of interest to the audience. And it's interesting when you discover your audience is of a certain demographic. And that is where it becomes very interesting for me. And I can share with you what happened in, in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious. Like You're quite conscious of your listener numbers. You're quite conscious of who your audience are. And you're talking to your audience, which I think is a great you know, example for us to follow. Tell us a little bit about what you know and what that has done in terms of actionable insights for you. Yeah, so somewhere I think in 2015, I've done something pretty public, which is the drone delivery for Singapore Post. And everybody knew me as the drone delivery expert. That's in my professional career. But I hardly talk about it in, in my uh, podcast. So there was once I went to a conference, a logistics conference, where it's actually only for C-suite of a of different logistics companies. So I was giving the entire presentation. And at the end of the presentation, a couple of people walked up to me. I thought they were asking me about my corporate day job and said, are you the same Bernard Leung who does that podcast that I listen to? And I mm -hmm. said, yes. And then the first, that's why I asked, what, what was your feedback on my show? And the first thing is, why don't you just talk about your day job? <laughs> so what happens is that I discover that my audience actually uh, usually are of the leadership of executives or aspiring uh, young executives who wants to understand the market or people. Um, I've also deal with uh, people from the US who are hedge funds, private institutional funds who or VCs who wants to look at a particular company's footprint in Asia. So they usually um, they usually email me to ask me questions. And probably I set up a 30 minutes call with them. 
So I, I get to understand my audience through these processes. Mm. And I think in the process, I get invited to some private leadership executive conferences for at least, I think, three Fortune 500 companies. So I was invited as a keynote speaker for them. Uh, we do fireside chats where they introduced me as the founder of Analyze the Asia podcast because they wanted to hear my thoughts on what, I, what, what are the insights I've learned from my guests and what are the trends that are ongoing within Asia. So I'm starting to realize that actually the, the group I target is actually a very niche group. So most of the focus is actually there. And the last surprise I had was in World Economic Forum, which I was there really for work. And I have um, CEOs, COOs, or even a head of departments from pretty well-known Asia companies that I know coming up and say, hey, I listened to your podcast, mm. I'm a fan. I'm like, oh, okay. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, yeah, so I, I think that has changed a lot. Um, but I, the first question I always like to ask them is what do you not like about my podcast? Hmm. So I think that that's something that they they will always be glad to share their feedback. And sometimes they will also tell you what they want to do. Hmm. Okay, so there's a lot of information there. Unpack that a little bit. Hmm. I, I love what you're, you're – find out a little bit more about what you're doing with these conversations that, you know, you're, hmm. you're saying that people you listen to your show are reaching out to you. Hmm. Um saying that they like your show, they're fans, and you're setting up time to speak to them. Mm. What was, is that a structured thing that you do? Do you, do you publish that? Or is that just sort of you come back in the email and say, hey, let, let's set up a Skype call and have a chat. Are mm. you doing that just as um, really for you, outreach? I mean, it's obviously quite time consuming, isn't it? I mean, what, what, tell mm. us a little bit about this process and how it works. Mm. So typically I would get um, in the first year, I probably would get about one engagement per month. Uh, nowadays, I probably get about uh, one engagement per week. Mm. So typically, it would be a request from a VC fund. I will probably set up 30 minutes. I would just say that, okay, let's have a call. There, uh, there's no strings attached. I will just speak to them. They might want to find out. Maybe, usually, the questions are pretty specific. Uh, what I also do is I will help them to get to the right people. Mm to talk about this. So sometimes I may not be the subject matter experts. Um, this happens a lot when I'm talking to hedge funds who are interested in the energy market or uh, construction market. So I would lead them to the people within the network in Asia that they want to know. I see that part of uh, the process of first is actually to engage with the audience because they discovered me through my podcast. I use that as a way to figure out what they want to learn about this market. Mm. So I usually never put any strings attached or I didn't expect, or I don't get them to pay me at all because I think that this is also a very good way to build a network fund where you can, uh, a network fund, fund is something that was defined by uh, Reed Hoffman, the startup of you, that you actually build to get to know people. Mm. And then when you need something, you might be able to, you know, talk to them and then they can help you. I even got thank you cards from most of these funds in the US. So <laughs> I collect a stack of them, but I think, I think it's a very good way of actually engaging your audience. So I think, Absolutely. Yeah, so, it's a great yeah. idea. I'm, I'm taking notes, Bernard, and I think it's a great <laughs> idea because I, I never really thought about that. You know, obviously, the, the, the challenge is, is that, you know, you're busy, we're busy, you know, building our businesses, running our, you know, businesses and doing our day jobs. And then there's the podcast. And then you have a lot of people, like you say, like PR companies reaching out to you. You have a lot of people who are after your time. And then, you know, you have the funds reaching out and so on. 
So it's easy to be default mode, which is defensive and protective of your time, isn't it? Mm. And to say, look, okay, I'm just too busy. I can't speak to you. Um, you know, if you um, want to speak to me, then, you know, you have to come through this channel or you have to book my time or pay for my time and so on. Yet you seem to be quite happy to, you know, fr not freely, but invest in that relationship and, you know, give that person your time. And you get to learn a bit about your audience as well. And you're creating fans in the process, because I imagine if you have a good conversation and you help that person, then they will want, they feel part of the journey, which is Analyze Asia as well. So, mm. you know, it's a great outreach strategy. And certainly for those podcast hosts listening to this show, you know, that is something to take on board and definitely something that you should try at least. And, you know, e even one conversation will help shape your podcast long term, right? Because you can get that insight, that aha moment you get by talking to somebody else and listening to them relay back to you some of the things that you talk about on a regular basis within your podcast. Mm. And sometimes when I'm traveling overseas and I start putting it into my own Twitter feed, uh, people within that country who are fans of the show actually would reach out to me and try to get a meeting. Mm. So I'll actually try to accommodate um, when I'm in overseas, in, because I've been traveling a lot into China, Australia, Japan, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, almost most of Asia Pacific because of my current role, I get some downtime in the evenings and then I would just organize a short coffee. Some, somebody would just tell me, let's meet here and then we just have a quick chat. Mm -hmm. And then I, I get to meet people from different parts of the world and understand what they do and how they think about things mm. as well. Yeah. Well, great. I mean, I've certainly learned something. Do you see those people I mean, in terms of the, apart from how it sort of gives you insights as well, do they then become more active as listeners? Is there a, a tangible benefit in that context? Is there sort of, you know, do they then go and leave you a good review on iTunes? I know you're not doing it for that purpose, but is there sort mm. of a, a, a direct impact of that conversation on the audience behavior? So the audience behavior is a bit interesting. Um, I think because I'm on the high end side of the market, um, my audience don't like to leave reviews onto the, onto the podcast on iTunes. So one of the interest and, and this, that's the part that I actually find it very difficult as compared to some of the more mass mass uh, reach, re uh, reach type podcasts mm. on a certain subject. So because of the subject matter that I deal with and because it, it only appeals to a certain group of people. So and they are the type of people who are very busy. So they don't even have time to put a five star on the ratings. Mm. So sometimes, so when they come to give me the feedback, typically that they're given in person, and I typically just think that, okay, I'll just do my best. If people would love to give their feedback, great. If not, hey, I have, I got to know a lot of good friends on the internet mm -hmm. <laughs> through the podcasting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some, some long-term relationships are made through podcasting, whether it's the guests or mm -hmm. The, the audience as well. Yeah. I, I noticed you published recently, I think yeah. it was on LinkedIn, some of your data. You're quite yeah. open about that. Your yeah. listener numbers from SoundCloud, I believe. Yeah. Um, four years into the journey, I think you made about 40,000 yeah. downloads or, or listeners for 20 So, okay. Year. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in the last four years in SoundCloud, which constitutes about 10% of my channels, um, we have hit a hockey stick growth. 
Uh, this year, I think I will get a total of 250,000 plays and downloads hmm. on SoundCloud itself. So what is the key to that? I mean, if you were to, mm. you know, advise a potential podcast host or somebody who's out there just starting out. Now, you've, you've, you've spent four years learning your craft in podcasting, in analyzation, plus what you did before. Mm. And, you know, often there isn't a manual for this. There isn't a process. We have to make all our own mistakes and with our own time and our own money. And we're sort of in a way building that out for other people but for those people to look at what you've done and learn from your mistakes and your lessons and you know how you've evolved as a podcast host as well advising somebody just starting out to kind of follow what you've done the 250,000 plus however what do they need to do what are the things that they need to focus on and what should they do less of to get mm. there i think the the first most important thing is produce great high quality podcast episode one at a time right? The product speaks for itself. That's very important. Um, I think the second thing you need to have is grit and perseverance. But I think to be more specific to how to is you have to experiment every channel. So when I started off, um, the only lessons I could learn from are people from the US. So there were some do's and don'ts, right? One of the well, most well-known do's is that you put the first three episodes on the podcast mm -hmm. into iTunes and then immediately within the next four weeks, you have to put in eight episodes because that will improve your discovery. So you learn through those lessons from the US. However, the biggest problem in distribution for most Asian podcasts, as I have identified, is that we do not have what I call a network effect. So you could have a very powerful guest that is circulating around, say, um, different uh, US tech podcasts. If he appears on Recode Decode, he probably will appear on mm. Ezra Klein's uh, talk radio show, uh, maybe the, the talk show with John Gruber, or maybe with all the other podcasts. So you start to see this guest circulating around. And what the in the Asia side we don't have is that network effect. And we haven't reached that point where we can create a pretty good loosely run network that can actually, and actually the interesting thing about podcast audience is that once they're hooked onto your content, they like to search for other podcasts mm. that have similar content. Mm -hmm. um, that effect hasn't, hasn't happened. So, so these are very, um, I, I would say much important to do. And the other thing you need to try things like buying ads. So I did buy ads. I did, um, for example, I tried to purchase podcast ads from Overcast, I've done Facebook uh, promoted posts, but I've also targeted on on them listening to SoundCloud or maybe even videos, uh, which are actually audio recordings on Facebook itself. So those things I've actually learned in the process of trying to figure out and basically every episode I will collect data and then try to see which, um, which type of content seems to appeal to which geographic users. Hmm. So are you very clear without, you know, going into the detail here, because obviously mm -hmm. that's key to mm -hmm. your podcast and that's some of your secret information, but are you very clear about what content works for you? And do you have sort of in your head a blueprint of what a successful episode should be? Uh, yes. It, um, I think I have the, I have a example of that episode and it's actually one of my very old episodes. And um, it was, it is interesting because a very well-known 
um, tech innovator who I can't name, he used to be uh, the CTO of Microsoft, actually emailed me and thanked me for doing that episode. Mm. Uh, I think I mentioned it many times on the on the podcast itself. That was my favorite episode. It's actually when I interview um, Tim Kopan, who was a reporter first on Bloomberg, and then he moved on to be a columnist. And it was on Foxconn. It's episode 70. And what I really like, that, that is what I think the gold standard of a good episode look like. So the, the typical questions people wanted to know is how big must you be in order to get your stuff manufactured by Foxconn, right? Who are the people who you need to talk to in Foxconn to get your stuff manufactured, right? Uh, where are the offices? What are the things you need to be mindful of? Mm. So, so everything that everybody wants to know about this company, you get it in one episode. Uh, interesting that you say that you, you class that as your gold standard. Is that mm -hmm. on the basis of the fact that the right people reached out to you or is that on the basis of the listener numbers? Both. So it, first of all, is the con is, is, is a question that a lot of American startups who are into hardware, they wanted to understand Foxconn, right? We hear about them in the news, but we really don't know how to approach these companies, right? And in that conversation, Tim said, well, Foxconn is captive to Apple, but they have a subsidiary called FIH Mobile who produce handsets for other companies. Mm -hmm. ah, and then you discover that Xiaomi actually produced their handsets through FIH Mobile. So if you are not as big as Apple, you could go through their subsidiaries. Mm -hmm. So you learn a lot about even how they were doing acquisitions. You know, you learn a lot because Tim has covered Foxconn for 14 years. He even knows that there is a secret Apple facility focusing on image stuff. And you're talking in an episode where you're literally looking at this particular company that has always been viewed in a certain narrative. And if you can pull out the right narrative about that story and with people sending you a lot of remarks say, hey, this is a great episode, mm. then I think that that is the way to know whether that is the gold standard for the episode. Yeah, that's episode 17, you say. Go and check that one out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if people ask me which one is my best episode, yeah. I think that's the best episode. Excellent. Bernard, it's been yeah. a real pleasure speaking to you. I enjoyed mm, wow. our conversation. And, <laughs> um, you know, 276 episodes in, long may it continue. I think the important thing as well is that well, if we can just safely assume for the purpose of this conversation, you're mm. the, long, the longest serving consistent podcaster in Asia. And I'm sure there may be some niche podcasts that we haven't unearthed yet. And maybe they can, mm. if they do want to step up and identify themselves, then we'll give them a shout out as well. But as far as we know, it's you. So, you know, <laughs> we have to, you know, I suppose for myself and other podcasters out there. So, you know, the credit to you for making it happen and at least sort of blazing a trail and help, helping others get on the podcast uh, you know platform here in asia because you know it's a lot easier in america and it's a lot easier in europe because there's so many more examples to learn from but it's a lot harder here because i think it might be an asian thing as well people tend to observe and wait for somebody else to make the first move and step up right but you've done that so you know credit to you that's bernard mm -hmm. young everybody the mm -hmm. podcast host of analyze asia bernard before i let you go a shout mm -hmm. out to analyze asia for those that haven't yet discovered you where's the best place we can find you Mm. You can definitely find us on analyze.asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E.asia. If you Google uh, my name, Bernard Leong, you can definitely come and uh, 
engage with me, whether it's on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Mm. And of course, um, if anybody who, here's a secret. If you really want to know um, who, 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 how you could get to talk to me immediately without going through cold calls, it's best to talk to someone who knows me. That's mm. the best way to get to me, actually. Excellent. You heard it here. Bernard, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and sharing your journey mm. and um, you know let's do this again let's let's take an update at some point in the future and see where we are with the journey mm. and also you know where we are as well i suppose there's a conversation to be had about podcasting in asia as well we mm-hmm. were sort of starting i think 2019 will be an interesting year because we're starting to see and as a result of people like yourself obviously we're starting to see people now saying i want to start a podcast because you know there are public figures out there like yourself who have started now other people want to get on board it'd be interesting to see where we are this time next year in the podcast industry in asia and how Mm. many more voices and hopefully more local voices as well so more of it bernard leong everybody podcast host at analyze asia yeah. Thank you, Graham. And I stand among the, the shoulder of giants, all of you who are coming out with new podcasts. And I really encourage a lot more podcasters in the Asia market. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.